Jim Marty here from the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I have my partner in crime, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. How you doing, Larry? Yeah, I'm doing just fine. We finally got winter here uh, over the last 24 hours. We got ourselves about six good inches of snow, and just when we were beginning to wonder if we were ever going to get it, it came with a vengeance. Yes, I saw that on the news that the Midwest is getting hit with a snowstorm. Yep. Yep. It took a while, but here we are. It's winter in Chicago. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're lucky enough to have James Etchner and Ron Basak-Smith, and they're from a great company called Santa Packaging. And uh, so today we're going to hear about our overlap of uh, love of Grateful Dead and Fish music along with uh, sustainable business models. And um, James and Ron, go ahead and say hello. Hey, guys. got James here. Um, really excited to be on the show and uh, really looking forward to talking about some of our favorite things. Yeah, got Ron here as well and uh, 100% echo that. Uh, love talking to Grateful Dead Fish and business. It's more fun than that. Excellent. So um, let's start with a little bit of uh, Grateful Dead and Fish. Um, if you want to share with us, our fans here at the Deadhead Cannabis Show have heard a lot about Larry and I's experience with Grateful Dead and Dead and & Company and Fish. But um, go ahead and share some of your experiences because like many people who are big fans of the Grateful Dead, you were maybe even too young to see any shows while Jerry was alive. Go ahead and fill us in on your history and background on how you came to be big Fish and Grateful Dead fans. Yeah, so um, I can go ahead and start us off here. So the first time I heard the Grateful Dead was when I was uh, sick of all my current music and went looking through my dad's record collection and he gave me uh, Europe of 72 to listen to and I was about 14 at the time and it's been a, a love affair ever since and then uh, as far as fish goes, I started getting into fish shortly after that uh, however, I grew up in Switzerland, so I wasn't able to catch any pre-hiatus shows. And uh, when they came back in 2009, I was uh, living in the States at that point. So been seeing as many shows as possible since then and probably somewhere in the 60 show range uh, with Fish. And then, uh, yeah, uh, not lucky enough to have seen Jerry, but have caught you know, many, many uh, incarnations of Grateful Dead bands, including Further, Rat Dog, Dead and Co., and, and Billy and the Kids, and a few others. Well, that's great. And, and uh, first of all, like I said before, what a great dad you have. That's, that's what any good father should do with their kids when they want to know about music. Um, and I love, I love that he turned you on to Europe 72. Uh, my introduction was more through... Um, uh, 
uh, Working Man Dead and American Beauty, which was a great way to do it. But for me, Europe 72 kind of brought it all together because that was the first time you know, I'd ever heard the Dead play live and was amazed at how different it sounded li- before I saw them in concert, how uh, amazed how different it sounded live, same song uh, than it did on the uh, on the album. And then I went out and saw them a few times and came back and put Europe 72 back on because at the time it was really the only live Dead music that I knew about and, you know, really confirmed that, wow, this is really special what they do. And uh, my love affair with Europe 72 went on to the point where a few years ago, uh, the Dead released uh, a box set with uh, every show from the Europe 72 tour. And it is, without a doubt, my favorite box set that they've ever released. And it's one that I listen to uh, continuously. And it, it's, in my opinion, it's kind of unique because it gives you that rare opportunity to hear Bobby, you know, playing certain songs like um, uh, Playing in the Band and uh, some of those others he was just brand new with. And over the course of that tour, he develops them into the songs that we all recognize today. Yeah, that uh, Europe 72, I have that complete set too. I was lucky uh, a friend gave that to me a few years back and some good stuff on there. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Can I jump into my uh, early days of the dead? I thought it was a good story. So I was uh, born in 89. My uh, parents uh, had me while they were still in college and they were... Um, they opened up a couple cafes in Ithaca, New York, and they themselves—they themselves were not deadheads um, at the time, and but um, many of their employees were. And so, from I just have very early memories of life hearing hearing those songs. And then my first show, my parents, uh, their employees, I guess, one point in time, felt that they needed to go to a show, and so they bought them. Uh, tickets to Buffalo 93 and they took me I have no memory but I think it probably had some impact on me in some way or another my dad says it was a terrible show but um, you know it was uh so they didn't they never really continued to go seeing seeing dead shows at that point in time um but you know life went on and for some reason in high school I was walking down a uh CD aisle and saw a Grateful Dead CD, you know, kind of was just browsing, turned over, recognized some songs. I was like, grab this thing. There's the, uh, you know, Grateful, like, great, greatest hits, classic, you know, all the kids on there. And uh, just kind of from that point on, it's pretty stuck to it. Uh, well, I, I don't want to say that that makes me feel old, but I was going to see the dead in the late eighties and early nineties. And we always used to see people there with their little kids. So you were probably one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we'd say, wow, that's kind of cool that parents take their kids to, to see the shows. And, and one other thing I have to throw in, you grew up in Ithaca. Ithaca for me in my early years was the center point of my grateful dead existence. My best friend and the, the guy who turned me on to the dead, a fellow named Mike Miller from Minneapolis went to Ithaca college. And we were all in Ann Arbor. We used to drive to visit him at Ithaca College, and from there it was like the jumping-off point. You could see the dead in Rochester, Binghamton, Syracuse, uh, and Ithaca. You, you could catch like four or five dead shows in four or five days without ever having to drive very far in any one direction. And it, it was amazing. We used to love to go up there and uh, hang out in Ithaca and hit peaks at the nines, and then uh, go see the Grateful Dead. I actually ended. I went to Ithaca College. I had to. I didn't. I didn't grow up there. I moved away when I was like four or five but i knew that was a good place to catch shows so that's where i went to school and then 
I think it was uh, my sophomore year when they when they played Barton Hall, further played Barton Hall. And I was like, that's it's just felt good. It's a good time. Barton Hall, that's the scene of the greatest day show of all time. Mm-hmm. All right. One of our family stories is our older son, who's about James and uh, Ron's age. He's 31. He lost his first tooth at a Grateful Dead concert <laughs> in Las Vegas. I believe it was 93. And, um, you know, in the darkness and the confusion of a show, here he lost his first tooth, five, six years old, and he uh, immediately lost it. <laughs> and on the verge of tears, um, one of the ladies who was with us picked up a kernel of popcorn and said, no, here it is, here it is. And so uh, that night in our RV, we put that kernel of popcorn under his pillow. So that's a famous uh, Marty family story that we retell when everyone gets together. But um, I want to send this conversation um, in a slightly different direction because the four of us actually are on the same page where we both are fans of both the Grateful Dead and Fish. And that's not a universally true statement. Um, many people who like the Grateful Dead have no interest in Fish and vice versa. And I wonder if Ron and James, as uh, as good representatives as they are of the millennial generation, if they have any comments on that, and what, what do you see in your friends? Do you get them into Fish and the Grateful Dead, or do they, they like one and not the other? What are your comments, gentlemen? I think uh, amongst my friend groups, there's definitely, um, I think, it's, I don't know, everyone seems to like both. It's hard to this point in time separate the two. The, uh, I think for us, as, you know, in our age group, the uh, the fact that Fish is still playing live shows plays a huge impact in the in the whole thing. You know, the live experience it's hard to beat that. But you know, me and one of my good buddies, we were at GD50, and that was a, a funny culmination for us because there is such that kind of that strife between some fans between the Dead and Fish. And you know, the uh, my buddy turned to me at one point during a relatively fishy sounding section of the show and he was like look at all these dead heads dancing to fish and love and try um and i just thought that was a great moment in time and uh it was uh yeah they they go together quite well well you know they're, they're very different but uh their differences is what makes them appealing at different times and different moments in life yeah it's funny you know everyone's musical taste is different but i'm i'm always amused by the jam band rivalries you know because it it's first of all you know it's all subjective so people like what they like uh, um but it is it is really funny just witnessing how into it you know people get over the the differences between them and which is better and you know the the truth is in my mind that there's big overarching things that they have in common that are you know more from the community perspective you know obviously musically they're you know night and day from each other you know and there is an influence but it's really it's it's i think the reason i like both of them so much is because of the similar community that they foster that's exactly what i was going to say as an old guy my impression is is that uh, the younger people really like both bands a lot when you slip back to to my generation and jim's generation I, I think that's where you see uh, not quite as many people with the overlap. A lot of guys I know, you know, we all grew up, we went to millions of dead shows and Fish was out there, but we were so committed, so scheduled into going to one of the bands that we, we just didn't feel like we had the bandwidth necessarily uh, to take on another one. And quite frankly, for me, it took a few years after Jerry's death 
uh, before I finally went to my first fish show. And like you just said, uh, the amazing thing to me was to get there and, and to discover that the sense of community and the, and the, the crowd was, was so much the same as, as the dead in terms of the way they, they acted and cared and respected one another and loved their music. And, and that's really what pulled me into fish was, you know, kind of being able to find another community like that that I really felt comfortable with and, and really enjoyed going to a show with. And, uh, you know, it was almost like the music for, with fish came second for me after I found a place where I really liked to go. And they both have Shakedown Street. Yes. <laughs> that they do. That they do. Very important. For people listening to this who don't know, um, Shakedown Street, in addition to being a Grateful Dead song, is also what we call the bending, the impromptu, um, sometimes black market bending that goes on outside the shows with the tailgating. And so they both have a strong uh, Shakedown Street where you can buy T-shirts and all kinds of crazy things out in the parking lot. Um, well, let's shift it over to business, because uh, you guys have a heck of a business that you've started. And um, as an accountant for the cannabis industry, I'm very interested to hear about, number one, how you got started, because capital for cannabis and cannabis-related business is scarce. And also, number two, the sustainability, because, like I said, as an accountant, uh, I see a lot of the byproducts and the waste that is generated by the cannabis industry. You know, growing cannabis does create a lot of waste. It creates wastewater. It creates a lot of empty plastic buckets uh, and other items that are used up in the process that create uh, things that go to the landfill. So um, I'm going to turn it over to James and Ron. And tell us a little bit about the history of your business and how the sustainability model is working for you. I like the uh, the transition from to Shakedown Street to get into the business talk. I think you know that at its core, um, probably for James and I, many many walks down Shakedown and just the the understanding of how that business model works. And um, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels to the way we want to you know incorporate our business and build that community, um, you know, around sustainability and, you know, cannabis being a new industry um, really gives us that opportunity. So the history of our business, James and I were in grad school together at CU Boulder, both had been in Colorado since legalization and really saw the amount of cannabis waste um, that was being created and really felt that there was a better way to do it. We were fortunate enough to be in a class project together where we were kind of able to develop the, the initial foundations of the business. Um, and then going into our second semester of school, uh, or second semester of our last year of school, uh, Canopy Boulder, cannabis-focused uh, business accelerator, was doing their, uh, was launching a cohort. And so we were lucky enough to be accepted into that cohort during our final semester of school. Um, and that was actually our initial seed funding for the business. Um, we very early on realized that to do what we wanted to do and get this business off the ground, it was going to take a good amount of capital. Um, and so we just kind of, the, the stars aligned for us where we were finishing up school, had some initial seed funding, and were able to really focus 100% on getting this business off the ground. And I can let James dive into, you know, kind of the philosophy behind what we're trying to accomplish with, with Sana and uh, our packaging. Yeah, and uh, one other thing I'll touch on related to the accelerator is, you know, it, accelerators are a great opportunity for people, um, but it's always, you know, based on whether it's going to be a good fit for you and your team. 
And Ron and I were two guys that had an idea and we had no time and no money to work on that idea. And really what the accelerator provided us with was that time and money, as well as a, a network of individuals that we could begin to tap into as you know resources, both financially, but also from a, a mentorship and partnership perspective. So that really is, you know, without Canopy Boulder, uh, Ron and I would have never really had that opportunity to dedicate the time and money necessary to sauna packaging to actually get it off the ground. And then from a philosophical perspective, uh, what we're trying to do is create cannabis packaging for a circular economy. And the way we define a circular economy is, you know, there's three main pillars to it. And one is designing out waste and pollution. The second pillar is keeping materials in use for as long as possible. And then the third pillar is doing our best to regenerate natural systems along the way. I think that's great what you guys are doing. I love the plan. I love the idea. And what I really love about it is this. First of all, you're, you're, I, I love this idea of a circle, right? That the, the packaging is made out of cannabis to hold cannabis that you're then using and, but more than that, you know, what your idea does is that, you know, look, we've, we've gotten to the cannabis world. And one of the things that I hear everybody saying is, hey, the good news with the bad news, right? If you're going to be in business, then you're in business really with the world like any other business out there. Um, and that's true. But I still think of the cannabis industry as being different because it's cannabis. And whether it's right or not, I still to keep our show in full circle, associate cannabis with my Grateful Dead and fish experiences and things like that. And these were the experiences that really taught me uh, to appreciate things more like our environment and being conscious and socially aware of things. And uh, the idea that you guys within the cannabis industry are taking these ideas and applying them so it's not just useful and helpful for the industry, but it's sustainable and it's good for the world and it's good for the environment, I think, you know, really kind of helps draw this circle for people who are just brand new to the industry and coming in to show that, hey, you know, that there's more to cannabis than just smoking and enjoying it, there's this whole lifestyle and this whole view that says it's our planet and we got to take care of it and we're going to do it in this industry. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think James and I, we always, we always talk about it in the sense that we feel, you know, the mentality of both Grateful Dead and Fish in the sense, that, you know, break the rules, there are no rules, see, see what's possible. I think that's really true in the cannabis space and in a new industry. Um, and we just really feel that way uh, about packaging in the sense that we can really um, use the the nature of the industry and the fact, you know, that it's set state, state lines, um, under-regulated and over-regulated in many senses, um, to create a new framework for packaging and hopefully, you know, show that we can we can do things a different way. Yeah, thoughtful packaging, thoughtful marketing. I think it's great. Tell us about some of your products and what they're made of. Yeah, so, you know, our material type uh, and our products, we really have two philosophies here. Our first one, um, our plant-based line is what we launched with. Um, it's 100% plant-based bio uh, hemp biocomposite. And the whole idea here um, is really look, looking at the world of bioplastics and saying, you know, really there's kind of one, the elephant in the room being corn, corn plastic, PLA. And the idea there that the idea is great, but really in practice, um, there's a lot of problems with the industrial corn industry and just how, how that whole supply chain is built right now. Um, and so, you know, we, we obviously want to see how we can be disruptive there, move moves much away from that material as possible. But, you know, understanding that that's really what we have to work with for a lot of these products right now. And so the idea of becoming 
to use hemp as uh, a viable speed stock. You know, when we started Sana, uh, hemp was just um, just kind of entering into legalization, and so that was the whole idea is that we're going to have this this plant that we can really use to create bio bioplastics and biocomposites. Um, and we know that there's an industry who wants these materials, and so. We really focused hard on, you know, getting getting that product to market. That was really our, our goal. We wanted to be show that you could use hemp as a feedstock to make a biocomposite and then, you know, make it meet all the regulations that the industry requires. The second idea here is that we also, in the world of packaging, there's many, many product types that we're potentially packaging. You know, it can be flour, concentrates, vape pens, edibles, uh, beverages, etc. And so, you know, we know there's going to be more, more material types needed. Um, hemp is very early on in its its development. And so for us to run a viable business and really meet the needs of, uh, of our customers, we need to use other other materials. And, you know, traditionally in the world of packaging, folks are using mostly virgin material. Um, we want to take on that producer responsibility and transition away from using virgin material in creating single-use plastics. Um, you know, the idea here is that recycling is great. We should continue to do it. But if we do not actually remanufacture and uh, work around some of the difficulties with recycled materials that we're currently experiencing, well, then we shouldn't do that system, right? Like if we're under 10% reproduction of recycled goods, then, you know, every year more than 90% of the, the materials produced are not getting recycled plastics. You know, that's that's just not acceptable. So what can we do to change that? We know that there's a abundance of non-virgin material available on Earth. And so for us, that's just kind of a tenet of our business. We want to always try to incorporate as much non-virgin material as possible into our business model and into our products so that we can basically make the systems work. You know, that's what we really want. We want to say, how can we make the pre-existing systems that are out there? Um, we know that there's problems with them. Um, we know that they're not uh, accounting for many of the negative externalities. Let's start from the ground up with our business and the model that we're creating so that these negative externalities are, are lessened. And I think that's where our reclaimed ocean plastic line comes in. Um, I think that product from, uh, you know, is, is very easy to understand. We have a abundance of plastic out in the ocean and waste and we can use that material to make usable goods um, and you know we really as a business want to focus on the fact that the materials aren't necessarily the problem um, the problem is our waste system and the fact that these materials make it out into the environment make it out into the ocean and you know questioning why that's happening what can we do to change that bringing awareness to it um, is all, all really important to the whole whole idea and uh, our business it's interesting that you bring up hemp because um, it seems that that industry, it reminds me so much of where the marijuana industry was 10 years ago, where it's basically two or three uh, harvests is what we have under our belt since the 2014 Farm Act and now the 2018 Farm Act has basically made low THC hemp uh, legal. It can be transported across state lines and there's just so many uses for it that the size of the hemp industry, I think, very quickly will dwarf the smokable high-THC industry. Uh, do you, James or Ron, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's definitely, yeah, the whole non-smokable uh, side of side of things, industrial side of hemp, I think, is, you know, the opportunity there is is massive. Um, the the biggest thing, and, you know, we, we experience it every day in our business is, 
that these things take time. You know, everyone, you know, hemp is legal and then people expect that products are going to be there and it's just easy to happen. But when you look at kind of the history of any any product, any crop, you know, there's a whole um, development of the genetics and the processing, commoditization, and then the ability to manufacture with it becomes a huge a huge factor. And where are these, um, you know, who are the players and the manufacturers that are going to work with this different material, the variations, um, the difficulties really in using um, a new material and you know, the variances that everyone knows happens when cultivating any cannabis product. Well, what I like about this is that we're, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a, a stoner's or a deadhead's dream if you're sitting around during space thinking about things, right? You come to the conclusion, hey, wait a second. This hemp that we have is so good, we can use it to make a container to hold the hemp itself. And, right, it's, it's, uh, it's a great idea. I mean, what you guys have done is uh, is amazing, first of all, that, you know, you had the vision to do it, and second of all, that you were actually able to do it. And you know, I can tell you from my, my day-to-day law practice, most clients who come in usually, you know, satisfy one of those criteria, and they have a great idea, but they don't know how to do it, or they're very talented, but they don't know what to do. Um, and you guys have really, uh, you know, brought that together in a way that's both impressive in terms of the quality of the product you produce and uh, its positive impact on this uh, industry as well as society as a whole. I seem to recall that uh, in our discussions, you were letting us know that somehow you guys are now involved with uh, Mickey Hart's new brand of smokable uh, cannabis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is uh, really exciting for James and I, kind of, I don't know, just felt awesome when when. Mickey Hart's brand reached out, mind your head, to uh, see if they, they, you know, they asked if they could, if they could use our uh, pre-roll tubes for their brand, and you know, obviously that was uh, we were super excited about it, and everything ended up working out. They just launched with it, um, just basically this month, I think, last month, and um, thank you. There, uh, should see them all all around California. Yeah, they're they're hash infused pre-rolls, and uh, in true Mickey Hart fashion, they will blast you off and uh it also really validated a lot of what ron and i have been working on for the last few years you know if there's if there's one uh you know if if working with a working with a member of the grateful dead really just um validates everything we've done (laughs) so right so that this is my version of the, the the grateful dead fantasy game right which is we all go on with our normal lives and one day the grateful dead reaches out to you that's pretty amazing that's awesome. That's very, and you're right. Those, those, man. I, I tried one of those pre rolls. Unbelievable. Nice, nice. But before we bail, I just have to, and I'm for, so sorry. In the in the in the pre up to the show, which one of you was at the Fish New Year's show? Uh, I was. Ron. Okay, so, so you, you know, so I, I, I heard the music. I know that you know that the show was great, but of course, the big mystery of that show. And if you were there live, you could help us. What the hell happened to Trey on that platform? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, so you know, being there live uh, in the moment, you're kind of like, what what's going on in in true fish nature? You're always, you know, you never know if they're if they're pulling a gag or if there's some some messaging going on or or what. I you know, but I would say during the during the show, it was awkward. There was a long a long pause, um, and you, it just you know, for that type of show, New Year's show, that just that didn't make sense. Yeah, wasn't um, it like a five minute pause or something? Yeah, and then you know the uh, the you know at the end of the show, the whole uh, the re- the rescue squad song that kind of was you know I could tell there's there's you know that that just didn't seem normal. Um, but if you go back and listen, you know they have uh, they have video of the whole thing now. If you watch. 
soon after, because I was like, you know, I kind of wanted to figure out what was going on. And you watched, I think it's after Sand um, or during Sand. Uh, if you look at Trey's left front uh, chain that's holding his uh, platform, you see, if you're, if you're looking at everyone's really closely, they're all taunt. And the left front one on Trey's has an ever so slight wiggle to it. It's so slight, but you can definitely, it's noticeable. And you're like, that has to be the time when it happened and all the other uh, platforms went down. That's my theory. That's what I, you know, what I saw. But um, yeah, it definitely seems like there is a, some type of mechanical, some type of mechanical issue. And if you know that those platforms, if you have one chain that's not working, you can't really, can't really move it. But it definitely seems like, I mean, you rewatched it on that, you know, during the moment of, they're all, you know, it's quiet and seems like they're figuring stuff out. Eventually, he's just like, you know, fuck it. We're going to go for it. You know, that's that. And, and, and here's my other question. Was the 38-minute tweezer really all that? It was pretty awesome. We were, I was, uh, for New Year's, I wasn't on the floor, but for for the tweezer the uh, night before, yeah, this, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I don't know if you've ever been on the floor at MSG, but the energy there, sound, uh, it's a good spot for that type of stuff. So. Fantastic! That's fantastic. And then Jim, just uh, to, you know, on the music front, I was just wanted to let you and our listeners know, in case they're interested out there, I did just have a chance to see um, uh, the North Mississippi All Stars the other night. And for people who have not yet seen them, you have to go see them. And for people who have seen them, then you know that you have to go see them. They got a slightly new lineup. They have a new bass player. Um, but uh, Luther and Cody were uh, at their peak, and you know, one time they're playing drums and they're playing guitar. They played a great Deep Ellum blues, and they're going down the road feeling bad. And uh, they they played for about three hours, so they were just absolutely excellent. And then this week coming up, we got the Tedeschi Trucks Band coming to town. Uh, do either of you guys, uh, Ron or Jim, are you guys uh, into the Tedeschi Trucks Band? Love Tedeschi Trucks. Yeah, um, love it. Susan Tedeschi has the voice of an angel, and <laughs> that is all I have to say. <laughs> she does. The angel from Montgomery. It's uh, it's it's beautiful. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, it's good. And well, this is great. And I was going to say that we have some things to look forward to. Fish in Mexico will be their next fish shows, I believe. And then um, they just announced the lineup for... Jazz Fest and the first weekend in May, Den and Company will be playing at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. I saw that. And Den and Company right now is playing in Mexico. Jazz Fest though is really, I think, one of the greatest festivals on the planet. I there's I've not been to anything like Jazz Fest and I've been to a fair amount of festivals and that is just the most magical city to see music in. Well, it's Lollapalooza for adults. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they've got real food and stuff like that, and the Jazz Fest is awesome. And, and of course, is, if you guys have been there, then you know, as great as Jazz Fest itself is, you have to catch those late-night shows because that's where the magic happens. All about the late-night shows. <laughs> like, there's no other city, I think, in the United States where you could, like, you know, maybe maybe New York, but, you know, where you can just be at show after show after show and see, like, three or four shows in an evening with, you know, set times going to as late as, like, 7 a.m. Oh, yeah. You know, the meters never came on stage till 2 o'clock in the morning. It was wonderful. Very much so. Well, this is great, guys. It's always fun to talk to people who are uh, found a niche and are successful in the cannabis industry. And if they love the dead and fish and jam bands, all the better. 
I mean, we're, we're so happy you guys could get on our show today and uh, talk to our fans out there. We'll tell everybody, start looking for Santa packaging wherever you can. Let's support these guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. This is awesome. Sure. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Well, thank you very much, James and Ron. And um, we'll look forward to uh, seeing some of your products on the shelf and uh, see if we can't uh, help you out by buying a few things that are wrapped in your packaging. So this is Jim Marty saying uh, for the Deadhead Cannabis Show, over and out. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, James. Thank you, Ron. And um, catch you next time. Guys, keep on keeping on, gentlemen. See you at the show. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.